Welcome back to The Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt. And we here at The Journal Feed, we seek to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. Spoon feeding doctors. Our team combs through the literature to find the best articles so that you don't have to spend your time doing it. And then provides expert summaries, no bigger than a spoonful, so that you can keep up with acute care medicine. The original Spoon Feed is an email newsletter that comes out five days a week so that you can get your spoonful every morning as you start your day. This is an audio version of the past week summaries that this week were brought to you by the admirable Sam Parnell, Aaron Lacey, Nicole McCoyne, and Clay Smith. The first article from this week was titled, The Evaluation and Management of Blunt Cerebrovascular Injury, a Practice Management Guideline from the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma out of the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. So, a patient walks into the ER after blunt trauma and asks you, Hey, doc, should I get a CT angiogram? What do you tell them? Jokes aside, this is a common question. Maybe not by your patients, but something you'll ask yourself. And there's no easy rules to remember to help out. But even if you do scan, does it help? Yeah, actually, it turns out, not surprisingly, that it does. This was a meta-analysis of 23 studies on blunt cerebrovascular trauma. What they found was that the more you look with the CTA, the more you found. The implementation of a screening protocol had an odds ratio of 4.7 for detecting injuries versus not having a screening protocol. CTA was also more likely to show blunt cerebrovascular injury with high-risk C-spine injuries than compared with low-risk injuries with an odds ratio of 12.7. On top of that, once you've found an injury, antithrombotic therapy versus doing nothing at all significantly reduces the risk of stroke and death by about 80% each. That's no joke. So if there's such a big benefit to using a protocol, what should we be using? The authors of the study actually put forward two protocols, the Denver and Memphis criteria. We include the Denver criteria in the blog post, but I won't repeat them here for you because they are extensive and there's no way that anybody is memorizing them. They haven't made it onto MDCalc yet either, but consider pulling them up the next time you have a relevant patient. So in a spoonful, using a screening protocol to determine which trauma patients to order a CTA of the head and neck on matters. It detects more blunt cerebrovascular injuries, which leads to more treatment and that in turn reduces the risk of stroke and mortality. On to the second article, which was titled The Prevalence of Intracranial Injury in Adult Patients with Blunt Head Trauma with or Without Anticoagulant or Antiplatelet Use out of the journal Annals of Emergency Medicine. Cerebrovascular disease is the biggest killer in the United States. As a result of this, we have a lot of patients, for this reason and for others, that use aspirin, antiplatelets, and anticoagulants. In patients who've had head trauma, should we have a lower threshold for getting a CT when our patients are on warfarin or dual antiplatelet therapy, or can we treat them the same as everybody else? To answer this question, we have a large multi-center prospective study of adult patients with head trauma requiring CT, comparing those with anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy to those without. They enrolled just over 9,000 patients in this study to try to suss out the answer. What they found was a significant increase in intracranial injuries found on CT, like bleeding, cerebral edema, and skull fractures, for those patients who were on warfarin, with a risk ratio of 1.88. 
as well as patients taking dual antiplatelet therapy of aspirin plus clopidogrel, with a risk ratio of 2.88. Notably, there was no statistical difference found for patients taking either aspirin or clopidogrel alone. So, in a spoonful, patients with blunt head trauma taking warfarin or dual antiplatelet therapy were at greater risk for significant intracranial injury found on CT. So in answer to our original question, yeah, we should be scanning these patients. Next up, we have the third article, which was titled First Aid Cooling Techniques for Heat Stroke and Exertional Hyperthermia, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the Journal of Resuscitation. Winter is slowly fading, my friends, and out is coming the beautiful ball of fire that we call our sun. Soon the days will be heating up, and the trend seems to be towards hotter and hotter summers due to climate change, meaning that we're ever in danger of overheating. Now then, exertional heat stroke, which is what we're going to be talking about, is defined as hyperthermia with a core temperature over 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit, associated with CNS dysfunction after strenuous activity. This might not seem like something that happens commonly, but exertional hyperthermia is among the leading cause of death in young athletes. And treating these patients focuses on immediately getting rid of any sources of heat and cooling them down as quickly as possible. If that leaves you wondering which way of cooling is the best supported by evidence, then you're not the only one wondering that, and that's what the authors wanted to answer. They put together a systematic review and meta-analysis of 63 studies of adults with exertional hyperthermia. While this study certainly had limitations and not a lot of the data was necessarily high quality, we'll cut to the chase and see what the authors found. Water immersion techniques appear to be the most effective ways to lower core body temperature. Cold water, colder water, ice water doesn't have good enough evidence to show the difference between them. So for now, any water that's between 1 and 17 degrees Celsius is good to shoot for. If you're interested to take a quick look at one of the figures in the paper, which we posted in the blog post, figure 2 actually compares all of the various methods that they looked at. And I like it because it includes everything from showers to evaporation to even hand fanning. So in a spoonful, cold water immersion gives significantly faster cooling for patients with exertional hyperthermia when compared with more passive cooling measures. The fourth article was titled Antibiotic Use and Outcomes in Children in the Emergency Department with Suspected Pneumonia out of the journal Pediatrics. Any doctor is quite familiar with reminding patients that every medication comes with potential side effects. This is probably more relevant for antibiotics than many other drugs. And on top of that, we can't forget that antibiotic resistance is growing. If your pediatric patients with community-acquired ammonia were able to recover without antibiotics, why risk complications and add fuel to ever-growing resistance problems? This study was a secondary analysis of a prospective cohort of children who presented to a pediatric emergency department with suspected community-acquired pneumonia. Children were in two groups, either receiving antibiotics or not, and then they were propensity-matched, including the severity of symptoms at the time of presentation. Just under 300 children were included, and just a hair under 50% received antibiotics. The primary outcome of the study was treatment failure, here meaning that patients had to return to the hospital for hospitalization, return to start antibiotics, or to change their antibiotics. And what was found was that there was no statistical difference in treatment failure between patients receiving antibiotics and those who did not. 
To really pour it on, there was also no statistical difference in quality of life measures between the groups. That includes diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal pain, and time of resolution of symptoms. So, while this appears to indicate that antibiotics aren't helping, at least they aren't doing harm. So this data actually supports evidence that most community-acquired pneumonia in children is viral. And previous studies have already shown that scaling back antibiotics in children is safe. The next study to do would be a placebo-controlled study of antibiotics in children. In the meantime, though, it seems like we may be prescribing many unnecessary antibiotics. But that being said, it would be a hard sell to withhold antibiotics in a clear pneumonia case without further evidence. So, in a spoonful, in children discharged with a diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia, there was no difference in treatment failure or patient-reported quality-of-life measures between kids who received antibiotics and those who did not. The last article for this week, which is near and dear to all of our hearts, given this hard time that we're all going through, was titled The Psychological Impact of Quarantine and How to Reduce It, a rapid review of evidence out of The Lancet. There are massive impacts as a result of COVID. Some of them are for right now, but some of them are going to carry forth into the future. One impact which we would be amiss to neglect is the psychological impact. Healthcare workers, in particular, are needed to quarantine due to exposures that we have at work. For many, they are doing this to protect their families and others. This isn't easy, and it's important that we acknowledge how truly hard it is. This paper was a review of 24 studies describing the psychological impact of quarantine. To start off, let's make sure that we're on the same page as for what quarantine actually means. Quarantine is separation and restriction of movement of people who have become potentially exposed to a contagious disease as to ascertain if they become unwell, so reducing the risk of them infecting others. This, of course, is different from isolation, where people who are definitely diagnosed are separated from those who are not. In these papers, the length of quarantine varied from anywhere from one week to three weeks. But right now, in this time, there are many of us, because of our repeated exposures, that might be abiding by the true definition of quarantine and will be apart from our families for much longer. So some of the things that the authors found were honestly expected, such as people who are quarantined are more likely to show symptoms of exhaustion, detachment from others, irritability, difficulty sleeping, and poor concentration. Mixed evidence led to no helpful predictors regarding characteristics or demographics for those who are more likely to suffer greater negative psychological impacts except those with a past history of psychological illness who did not seem to do as well. Looking into the studies of healthcare workers specifically did show some surprising results, with some studies uncovering significant downstream effects that lasted even years later. One study showed that quarantine was a predictor for post-traumatic stress symptoms in hospital employees even three years down the line. Another, measuring symptoms of depression after quarantine in hospital staff, saw that 9% had high depressive symptoms, and of those, 60% had been quarantined, but only 15% of those with low depressive symptoms had been quarantined. So what we see is that there's a link between quarantine and PTSD symptoms, as well as depression. On top of that, there was also a link between quarantine and alcohol use and dependency symptoms. And this impact appears to be significantly increased for those who quarantine for more than 10 days. 
The paper recommended several ideas to help mitigate the negative mental health effects of quarantine, but none of them were really revolutionary. These people should be well supplied, should be kept very well informed of their situation, and able to communicate at a distance as much as possible. Our author Nicole's favorite suggestion was for organizations and employers to step up and give special attention to healthcare workers in order to support them through this. In a spoonful, many negative and even delayed psychological effects of quarantining have been described in the literature, including PTSD, depression, and alcohol use. So be on the lookout and help your comrades. All right, quick review summary of everything that we learned today. First, patients with blunt cerebrovascular injuries are often underscreened with CT angiograms. The more scans you do, the more injuries you find, and the more injuries are treated. With a treatment that works, by the way. So decision protocols should be your friend in these cases. Consider the Denver or Memphis criteria. Second, blunt head trauma holds risks for many intracranial injuries. Think to have a lower threshold for scanning patients who are on anticoagulants or dual antiplatelet therapies since evidence suggests that they are at a higher risk. Third, exertional hypothermia is a real killer, and you need to help your patients chill out. The best way to do that quickly seems to be with cold water immersion. Fourth, most kids with pneumonia are walking out of your department with antibiotics. This study showed no benefit of antibiotics for quality of life or treatment failure in kids with community-acquired pneumonia. Finally, the last point, many of us are feeling it. Quarantining may have long-lasting and significant psychological impacts on healthcare workers. Unfortunately, it's very soon to expect proper institutional support for this, so we should be helping each other in the meantime. That's it for this week. The links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. That's it for the journal feed, helping you to keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.